I'm glad you all are here tonight, and I hope, I hope you'll work with me, because what I do want to do, and the reason we're doing Leviticus, is to go into like weird parts of the Bible and see, is this meaningful? Because clearly God thinks it's meaningful. Um, uh, is there something to be learned here? So I hope you're willing to kind of kind of meet me, do a little bit of work on your own to kind of understand where we're going, because this is hard, and I did... I studied a lot for it. Uh, I read a lot of different people across a lot of different traditions on it. And um, But before I read it, just again, the historical context of Leviticus, and, and you gotta, there's just, you got to actually recognize there's no way you can enter into their mindset at this point. This is a group of people who are literally weeks uh, out of being delivered from slavery. God had just delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They, so imagine kind of your worst nightmare, right? Whatever it is, final season, rush, whatever it is that you're panicked about or the breakup or whatever it is, your dark moments, okay? And remember how that lasted for days or weeks or maybe even months, right? Maybe even years. Their dark moment lasted generations, okay? Um, it's 400 years of slavery. They're a couple of weeks out. And Leviticus is written into that context, and he's teaching them about, you're my people I brought it out of slavery. You're my mission organization for the world. Genesis 12 is the thing that kind of shapes the entire Old Testament. Genesis 12 is when God calls Abraham. He says, here's what I'm going to do. And this is the beginning of his work of saving the world. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and make you into a great nation so that you can bless the nations. Then the latter half of the book of Genesis, Israel descends into slavery for 400 years. They're coming out again and God is saying, all right, I'm reconstituting you. And you're going to be my mission agency for the world. And I'm going to show you what it means to relate to me. And we saw a lot of that in the earlier weeks when we talked about sacrifices and the priests. And he's also saying, and I want you to see how to relate to the world. And so we're going to read these passages. Uh, not all of chapter 11. You can go back and read more. But some good summary statements that capture the whole chapter. And, um, and see if the Lord has something to teach us from these dietary laws and what it means for us today. So here's the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof is cloven-footed and chews the cut, among those animals you can eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof. It's unclean to you. The rock badger... Interpreters don't even, aren't even familiar or sure what that Hebrew word is. I don't know what a rock badger is. I didn't Google it. Somebody could. But no rock badgers. Um, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof, and it is clubbed-footed, but it doesn't chew the cud, the cud, it's unclean to you. You shall not eat of any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They're unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or rivers that doesn't have fins or scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. So you will regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. You shall detest these among the birds. Um, they shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, bearded vulture, the black vulture, 
a kite, not sure what that is. The falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl. Owls are getting a lot of love right here. The tawny owls, the carrion vulture, the stork, a heron of any kind, don't know what a hopo is, and the bat is out. It goes on for a lot more verses, but we're going to get to the conclusion and then we'll discuss the text. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about the beast and the bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground tend to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this is the word of God and it stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word and I pray that it will be fruitful for us to consider a text like this and it can only be fruitful if your Holy Spirit attends to it and does work in our heart. Help us to understand it, help us to apply wisdom and help it to draw us to you. Give us imaginations for seeing what you're doing and give us hearts that get engaged in what you're doing. Be with us, dear Jesus. Be with us in your name we pray. Amen. So, the governing question, really, for the rest of the book of Leviticus that we're going to talk about, and it starts here, but this word shows up in Leviticus. uh, It's the word that shows up more often than any other word, over 80 times, and that word is holy. And when I say that word, when I say, when we hear the term holiness or holy, I think there's a lot of probably confusion over it when, 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 when someone, a religious person, says, what is holiness? Or you hear that term. Uh, if you're a Christian, maybe it's kind of confusing. You're not exactly sure what it means. It, it might feel a little oppressive, uh, maybe a little guilt-inducing, because it's this something, whatever it is, we know we're supposed to aspire to it. It's supposed to be a big deal for us. Um, but we're not sure what all it entails. And I think probably in the most simple terms, when we think holiness and what it should mean for me, Maybe, and again, this is a, kind of a caricature, but maybe you think like, you know, read my Bible, uh, be known as a pretty nice person, um, try not to get drunk, try not to be kind of too sexually out of control. And like, if I get those things done, like, maybe that's kind of what holiness is. Um, and, and that's not a very compelling vision. Um, it's mostly about probably just trying to not get into trouble. Um, and you can bend Scripture and probably misuse Scripture to prove that vision. Um, but I'm not sure the Bible really supports that as the vision for holiness. Um, and if you're a non-Christian, or if you're a skeptic, or if, maybe if you're a new believer and you're kind of bought in, holiness sounds like a really bizarre term. It, it sounds self-righteous. Uh, it sounds like one of those terms that Christians refer to, uh, to you. They refer to themselves as a way of kind of looking down. Um, on others that aren't holy, it sounds off-putting, right? Um, And yet, this is not just God's main concern in this passage. This is kind of His big deal. Uh, All throughout Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. Shows up all throughout Leviticus. It shows up all throughout Scripture. His primary goal in Israel is their holiness, So what is it? And what I want to do is I want to give you a definition now, and then I want us to tease it out 
and see how this passage helps us to understand it. So here's our definition we're going to work with. Um, Holiness is this. It's living in conformity with reality. Holiness is living in conformity with reality. Uh, An old campus minister, Les Newsom, who really helped me kind of work through Leviticus, helped me out with that definition. Now, what does it mean? I'll give you a very simple illustration, and then we'll begin to apply it. But have you ever, and this is a hypothetical question, I think, might be a few that have done this. Have you ever jumped off a roof or a tall building and flapped your arms in an attempt to fly? Is there anybody? Doobie? <laughs> All right. So just one so far. Two. Um, the reason I think nobody has um, in this room is actually because it sounds simplistic. Go with me here. You have a sound understanding of the nature of reality. You understand how it works. You understand what your body is intended for. You understand how to use it in the right ways. You understand there are certain ways you're not supposed to use it. And if you use it out of accord with the ways it was intended, you make a mess, right? That's why nobody jumps off buildings unless they're hallucinating, right? And what does hallucinating mean? They've lost touch with reality. They forget physical laws that govern how their body works. And they they do something in contradiction or at odds with those physical laws. And it literally breaks their body. Physical laws govern reality, and when you break them, you get broken. To have life and to live it abundantly, you have to live, follow me on this, in conformity with the way the world is structured, the way your body is structured, the way food is structured, chemically, all kinds of different things. You're constantly actually making really wise decisions about the physical aspects of your body and the physical laws that govern how to make your body flourish, right? Let's take it from the absurd to something personal. Right? A group of friends, of cool people that you want to be with, that you want to be accepted by, is going camping. This weekend, you've committed to something, though. Right? Going to a Giants game with another group of friends that's maybe slightly less cool. You don't have as much to gain by being with them. And so what happens is you've committed to the Giants game, but there's camping here. And you weigh the options, and you see, in fact, there's... It's more fun to go with the people who you like being liked more, right? So these cool people that finally invited you get accepted into their group. So what you do is you back out of your commitment from the Giants game and you go camping, okay? Two things have happened right here in this decision. First of all, your reputation is damaged, rightly so, in the eyes of some people, right? You're accurately viewed as someone who doesn't keep their word, who doesn't fulfill their commitments, But more dangerously, you've actually justified to your own heart that it's okay for you to live without integrity, right? That trustworthiness, truth-telling, keeping your word, the things that were intended to govern relationships, in fact, are only optional, right? And so you've just declared with your actions, this is what you've also done, you've declared with your actions that some people deserve to be treated as more important than others, Right? You don't treat people that reveals that you don't treat people equally. In fact, there are others that are more important for whatever reason. They're funnier, they're associated with more wealth or success, or they have some kind of social gravitas or social capital you want to be near. And it doesn't seem like a big deal. Except God has ordered not just the physical world, but He's ordered relationships as well. 
And when you ignore the intended reality of relationships and how he intended them to be structured, that the things that govern a relationship are truth-telling, trustworthiness, integrity, character, valuing all people equally. Well, you've broken all of those rules. And so all the things, all the consequences that come to you that maybe you don't feel, but people can't trust you anymore. People view you as someone without character, right? Friends feel betrayed, right? Not only that, actually your heart has hardened because you've made yourself more and more comfortable with not being a truth-telling person, right? You are being damaged as a person because you're breaking the rules of relationship. And when you break the rules of reality, it actually doesn't damage just you, it damages everybody, right? It's, it's another path, a step kind of down the path of selfish, demeaning to others kind of pragmatism. And what it does is it makes us less and less human. What happens when you rebel against, when someone rebels against the reality, right, the rightly ordered nature of marriage? It breaks the family, right? When they betray the reality of marriage. See, the... According to the Bible, the rules of interpersonal reality, not just physical reality, but interpersonal reality, truth and integrity and valuing humans all the same way, that's the way the world was intended to be. And when we betray them, just like when we betray physical laws, things get broken. Right? Refusing to rest. Moral law in the Bible is to rest. Right? What happens when we refuse to rest? We break down. Right? Worshipping false gods like ambition, wealth, body image, sexual promiscuity, all these different things. When we betray God's structure for our humanity, relationships break, we break, things break between us and God. When we refuse to live according to the moral laws of reality, the same things happen as when we refuse to live according to the physical laws of reality. Drama should be the least surprising thing that happens within our friend groups. It's obvious why it happens, because we don't live with integrity. We don't live according to the rules of relationship. We don't treat people equally, and we're not truth-tellers. Drama is like the water we live in. I mean, it it makes sense that it's actually a part of all of our friendships because of the way we behave, because that's just disordered living, living out of accord with reality. And what it feels like as relationships break is it feels like death, because it actually is death. You're being disconnected from others. We're being disconnected from God. Then death breaks in in our moral and interpersonal living when it's lived in a disordered manner, out of accord with the way the world is supposed to be. Now, what does that have to do with food loss? Right? This is the big question, and this is where I need you all to like give me the benefit of the doubt or, or, or work with me to try to understand what I'm saying because it's an interesting passage and it's hard to understand. And there have been... I think three ways people have tried to interpret this passage that I don't think are consistent. It's weird. Some people have said, some scholars have said, it's arbitrary, we don't know why. Um, It's just a marker. God said, i got to pick a color for my team, and here's the color, but it has no meaning, right? So i got to pick a way to distinguish my people, so we're going to say, let's not eat bacon and sausage. And so that's just how you're going to know who the Jews are. There's no meaning to the prohibition, it's simply arbitrary. The problem is, it can't be arbitrary because it's connected to the very idea that God cares about the most, which is holiness. 
So why would he be completely arbitrary about the very thing he cares about the most? It doesn't make any sense. It's inconsistent with his character. It's inconsistent with anything else in the Bible. So another solution put forward is, besides being arbitrary, um, these animals that are prohibited were associated with pagan religions. So we don't want to associate with pagan religions. The problem was, is all the animals that are allowed are also associated with pagan religions. So they use uh, the animals that are allowed, like bulls and sheep and goats, um, are all also used in pagan rituals of other religions. So it's obviously not that reason. The third reason that people propose, and this is probably, for a long time, this is probably the tradition that people believed is that it was hygienic. Um, you know, that pork carried trichinosis, and if you undercooked it, you could get sick. Um, the problem was, is actually, the problem with that is, first of all, the camel, which is one of the prohibited ones, is actually considered a delicacy then. It's actually considered a very, very fine food. So the camel and the pork both being outlawed doesn't really make sense. But also, that this is also one of those ways where, like, 20th century people treat ancient people like they're complete idiots. They knew if you don't cook food, you get sick. So they knew, guess what? If you don't cook beef, you get sick. If you don't cook chicken, you get sick. If you don't cook lamb, you get sick. Just like if you don't cook pork, you, don't get, you also get sick. All of the animals carry disease, not just pork. They knew that. And in fact, the text doesn't address it as being hygienic. So then, what do they mean? Why are they here? And this is where I need you to work with me, kind of come with me down this path, and I hope I can explain it well. But every scholar I read on this all cites the work of a woman named Mary Douglas. She's a social anthropologist that studied ancient religions and um, ancient rituals all across the board, not just Christianity. And she makes a great observation about this text. She says, what are the two reasons, for instance, the beast of the field? And you, gotta accept, you also got to understand they thought with a different taxonomy about animals. So when it says beast, it kind of means beast of the field or herded or domesticated animals. And, it's saying, and, and so that was their taxonomy. It's different from the one that we have now. But she says, what are the two things, the two reasons um, that qualify an animal to be eaten? And it's they have hooves and they chew the cud. They have hooves and chew the cud. If they had paws instead of hooves, they were prohibited. And if they feasted on the blood of animals, they were prohibited. And here is what she says, is that the ancients, the ancient Near Eastern Palestinians and ancient people thought a four-legged creature is supposed to walk on hooves because a paw is like a hand. Now follow me here, just keep coming with me, don't get bored. A paw is like a hand and it's abnormal for something with paws to walk on four legs. If you're going to walk on four legs, if you're a beast of the field, a herded type animal, what is normal and what is right for you to be hooved. And so something that wasn't hooved was awkward. It was kind of didn't quite fit in that classification within that taxonomy. It kind of broke their taxonomy a little bit. Elizabeth and I are trying to come up with pictures of this on the way over here where there are certain things that just kind of don't fit taxonomies, you know, that kind of they confuse everybody. A, simple, a way to someone that doesn't quite work is like the tomato. Is it a fruit or a vegetable? Like it is a fruit. Well, you know, tomato is a vegetable, but... Peanuts, right? Not a nut. Did you know this? It's a legume. There are all kinds of things that, in a sense, just just work with me here. There are all kinds of things, you can probably think of them better than I can, that don't quite fit within their taxonomy. They kind of break the mold. They kind of, uh, they're, here's the word for it, they're abnormal. 
they kind of bring disorder into our taxonomies, right? Our taxonomy is clear. They brought disorder into it. That's the way they thought about pawed animals. They're like, no, 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 herded animals are supposed to be hoofed. But not only that, they weren't supposed to feed on the blood of others. And see, as the list goes, when you read about the birds, right, what are all the birds that are prohibited? Birds of prey that feed on the blood of others. Now, look at the fish. The fish, when you think creature of the sea, the first thing that comes to mind is a fish, right? And they thought, that's what's in the sea. Crustaceans, that's weird. To them, again, within their taxonomy, they thought, that doesn't fit what sea creatures should be like. It breaks our taxonomy. We think sea creatures should be like fish. So what God's going through is He's saying, there are certain things that break down the taxonomy that kind of bring disorder into the way that you understand your animal taxonomies. And here's what I want you to associate together. Disorder and death. Disorder and death. These animals feed on death. And these animals break down taxonomies. They bring disorder into the way we understand animal taxonomies in terms of their taxonomies. Right? They didn't do genus species or anything like that. Right? I didn't read the passage, but it goes on to insects. And for them, insects that you could eat were insects that jumped or walked along the ground because that was orderly and understandable. Insects you couldn't eat were insects that flew around aimlessly, that were chaotic, that brought disorder. Right? What he's doing is he's connecting in the minds of the Israelites. He's saying, what I want you to see is disorder and death go together. And by when what's permitted is order and life. Disorder and death go together and order and life go together. God's saying, I want you to ritualistically see in these symbols that animals that conform to normalcy and conform to their class that are one thing all the way through, they're clean. And they behave the way a four-legged beast of the field should behave. And there's order, there's consistency, there's order. Right? This actually makes sense of later passages in Leviticus that we're not going to get to in this series, but you can take this principle and apply it when God prohibits mixing seed of two different crops or actually mixing two different blends of fabric to make a fabric. The whole thing is he's saying you're introducing disorder into order. You're making something that's supposed to be one thing into kind of a disordered chaos. Same principles at root for those kinds of rules. And God's saying, I want you to practice something in your diet so that you can see something. I want you to abstain from animals that don't fit orderly within their class and are known for feasting on death. And then he concludes it all and he makes this connection, right? This is his big point. This is verse 45. I want you to be holy because I'm holy. And it's a teaching tool, all of this, for the purpose of communicating that inextricable link. Disorder and death go hand in hand. And I don't want my people near that because I hate that. And I want you all to see that symbolically in these prohibitions. And order and life go together. Rejoice in that and enjoy that. He's burning into their minds and their hearts that simple concept. Order in life, disorder and death. Because, you see, sin is nothing more than deciding that we understand the order of reality better than God. And so we try to order our lives in contradiction or at odds with the way He's ordered reality. And when we order our, our life in a way different from the way He's ordered reality, what happens? We're actually bringing disorder and death into the world. 
right? We're living out of accord with the way we were made. We're not living in conformity with reality, right? God can't make me happy. Money will. Right? God doesn't understand reality. He thinks orderliness is, that happiness is found in Him and that's the way the world is intended to be ordered. He's wrong. It's a disorder to live as if success, money, accomplishment can make you happy and God can't, right? God doesn't understand sex. I do. God doesn't understand beauty. The culture does. All of these are different ways that we disorder our lives. And what happens with all of those disorders? Chaos. Right? When you live in accord with the structures of reality, recognizing that reality is more than just physical, there is life. And life flourishes. The prohibitions were an illustration of connecting abnormality, disorder, and death. To live at odds with the nature of reality, it makes a mess and it leads to death. There's an Atlantic Monthly article that y'all should read uh, that just came out. It's amazing. And it tells a story of this journalist who goes to great lengths to become successful in journalism. And what the article is about is about ambition and community and how they relate to each other. Some of you might have already seen this. What it takes to be a successful journalist, what it took for him, is to move around all over the country accepting jobs whenever he could, doing whatever it takes to get to the top of his field. What it cost him was his family and his community. Because you can't have community and have that kind of ambition in his field. Right? It was about the relationship between community and ambition, and about when ambition becomes our chief virtue, people become disconnected from community and become lonely. Does that sound familiar? Relational disorder maybe is breaking into your life, maybe loneliness, precisely because we've ignored the reality of how humanity is structured. We were made in the image of the Trinitarian God. We were made to thrive within relationships, not just pragmatic relationships where you use each other to serve our ambition, but relationships in and of themselves. And friendships in and of themselves. And when we sacrifice friendship on the altar of ambition, we become lonely. On paper, right, we're killing it. And our souls, we're dying. Right? Because we've chosen to rebel against the order of reality. And God's saying all throughout the Bible that He is the real reality. In the beginning was the Word, was God. He's before all things. He sustains all things. He's above all things. He holds all things together. He created everything. He purposed everything. Everything is in relation to Him. He's the first and He's the all-consuming truth that defines all of reality. The order of reality is received from and authored by Him. And when we live out of accord with that reality, death and mess come. Our, our understanding... And our vision and our definition for holiness is woefully inadequate if it's simply things that I wish I could do, but I try not to do so God won't get angry with me. And if you never engage God on a deeper level than just that, then what Christians become, which we have become in the, in the culture's eye to some, to some degree, is this hard-to-relate-to group of arrogant moralists who define ourselves not with a vision and a dream of being with God and life flourishing, but rather we just been we're known for being kind of having an off-putting sense of moral superiority. Holiness is about human flourishing, 
It's about life the way it was supposed to be. And I think lack of imagination is probably one of our greatest sins for American Christians. That we think of holiness as just trying to not do bad things. Just try not to make God too upset with you now that you're in with Him. And what we need to do is we need to start imagining human flourishing. I think one of the most... One of the coolest things about Stanford is how capable we are. That it is true. Let's not deny it. What's funny is always talking to the people who perceive themselves as stupid at Stanford. And I'm like, y'all need to get off campus every now and then. Y'all, y'all are really gifted, and it's impressive to be around you. Uh, there's a lot of ambition, but there's a lot less imagination here, actually. I think people think Stanford's a place of imagination. The longer I'm here, I think there's... Less and less imagination here than anywhere else I've been. It's a group of people who are striving, 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 but striving for very little. And your vision for flourishing, right, will pick on the standard things. Your height of imagination is a successful startup, uh, managing wealth into millions or billions, um, building a network of people around you, your app, whatever it is. You have this dream, and I think the world tells you that dream is huge. And, and you have such heightened abilities that you begin to believe that dream is huge. But if you read the Bible, you're going to find out that if that's your dream of human flourishing, your dream is quite small. And you know where maybe some of you have met people who have much bigger dreams than Stanford students. And I'll tell you where I've met people who have much bigger dreams from Stanford students in orphanages. Elizabeth and I had years ago went to an orphanage in rural Kenya in Kajiado. Those children, you know what they dream about? They don't dream about millions. They don't even dream about billions, right? That's the new millions or whatever, according to the Facebook movie. You know what they dream about? They dream about resurrection. That destroys billions. They have much bigger dreams than any Stanford student I've met. And, and we might think that, well, you begin to have that kind of imagination that disconnects you from what's going on here day to day. Right? It's actually the opposite. The opposite takes place. When you begin to see how much God loves healing, then you imagine and you begin to hope for it, then you know what you do? You go and participate in it. You go feed pancakes to homeless people. You spend time with people in your dorm that you know are lonely because you just hate seeing seeing the brokenness of loneliness. You imagine a world without loneliness. So you go walk into other people's lives. You imagine a world without injustice, so you battle human trafficking. Right? You imagine a world where people tell the truth, so you become a truth truth teller, even if you suffer for it. Because you're like, this has to be reality. We have to be telling the truth. And you're more committed now to the truth than the advantages you gain from being a liar. Right? You imagine a world where people aren't valued according to their accomplishments, their net worth, the social capital they have. And so you start loving all kinds of different people. You keep obligations with not cool people at the expense of maybe possibilities with cool people. Right? You forgive because you imagine a world that's healed, where relationships are healed by forgiveness. You imagine a world where God alone is praised, so you sing louder. And you invite people to know the God who is worthy of all praise. You also rest because you imagine a world where you're not valued by your work and your achievement, but you're valued simply because God loves you. And so you rest. And the Bible, when that kind of behavior breaks into your life, the Bible has a way 
of speaking about it. And it's called this. It's called holiness. You're starting to act like your God who is holy. Be holy because I am holy. It's God's word over and over again to the Israelites. Israel is supposed to see in the diet of... They're supposed to see disorder and death connected. And that God's at odds with both of those things. And then, therefore, connection of holy living and life. Of human flourishing. And it wasn't simply for Israel's sake. Israel's purpose, right, Genesis 12, was always to be an advertisement for the world. Of human flourishing. Right? A loving people, a generous people, people making the goodness of God known to the world. An advertisement to the world of a community that experiences rich life and human flourishing and kindness. Life ordered the way it was intended to be ordered in conformity with reality. And so God wanted to see the world look in on the Jews and say, God can't stand disorder and death so much that He doesn't even want them to participate in their diet, even in symbolically. But what happens as you read the Old Testament is Israel, instead of being a beacon of human flourishing, lives a disordered life of death and destruction. And you see, one of the chief things that God knows all along is that simply knowing how to behave doesn't change how we behave. Simply stating, here's the way you should live, is not enough to get us to live that way. Because I think for the most part, we actually know what we're supposed to do. I don't think anybody does it. There there may be some small technical places we're not sure what to do, but for the most part, we know what we're supposed to do. We just don't want to do it. Right? Right? Even painting a picture of a flourishing world is not enough to actually grab our hearts and really transform us and get us to live our lives differently. And this actually brings us to why we don't observe these food laws today. Because that's the big question. That's the question Josh has had for years and years and years now, right? Is, why did God enact these ritual... uh, Josh and I are good friends. I'm not, like, alienating anybody. I hope, you know. why did God enact ritual observation, uh, ritual laws that He knew He was going to repeal later? Well, see, Mark 7, Jesus actually tells us why. Mark 7, several times in Acts, 1 Timothy 4, among other places, are clear repeals of the food laws. You see, all over in the New Testament, a consistent pattern of repealing the ritual or the ceremonial aspects of Leviticus. And the reason why is because in these laws, they were intended to see their need for Jesus and the whole world's need for Jesus. Because what when you see, when you're an Israelite and you're eating, and you see the pig or you see the camel, and you're eating and you're realizing, God wants me to have no interaction with disorder and death. He won't even let me touch that animal. What do you realize? You realize there's so much disorder and death in here. This is what Jesus says in Mark 7 when he actually repeals the food laws. He says, don't you see, it was never about what goes in your mouth that makes you unclean. These are Jesus' words. It's about what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. That's what I want you always to see. When you see that God cannot even tolerate the disorder and death of these animals, He wants to ritualistically see that we're not to touch them. Well, what about my heart? There's so much more disorder and death in there. Right? they were to see that they lived disordered lives, not simply that. They lived disordered lives and God still saved them. This is, God didn't save them as a response to goodness in them or as a response to faithfulness, but simply out of God's goodness. 
He didn't say, behave, and I'll deliver you from slavery. He actually said the exact opposite. I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of slavery. Therefore, be holy. His saving work precedes His command to live differently. If you get that order reversed, life is hell. Literally. The call to holy living is not a method for earning God's favor. It's the response to the grace of receiving God's favor freely. If you, get it revert, if you get it reversed, this is what life is. Your life is a never-ending treadmill searching for a verdict that gives you rest. That's what life feels like. Stanford, I feel like there are a lot of treadmills here. There are a lot of treadmills in all of our lives. The Jews had sub- what had happened is the Jews had subverted the very thing that pointed them to Jesus and they actually used it to avoid Jesus. They began to see the food laws as the way that they curried favor from God. Because I obey, therefore God will favor me. Instead of the way Jesus intended to use it, which is as a mirror, God doesn't tolerate disorder and death. I see it out there. I know there's so much more in here. It was never about God liking you more because you obeyed. It was always about holding up a mirror and seeing in us all the reasons that we should be rejected by God because of all the death and disorder in our hearts. And in the face of that, He showers grace on anyone who would ask for it. Literally, it's the best thing I get to ever utter in our UF. The prohibition on bacon was to show us our need for grace. Tweet that. Hashtag Hashtag RUF Stanford. No amount of law keeping could keep us acceptable. The death and the disorder that we see in the pigs on the outside is a mirror to point us to the death and disorder in our hearts. And when you get that, this is what you get. Grace is your only hope. Grace is your only hope. I'll close with a really short story. A friend of mine back in South Carolina, uh, one of the godfathers of RUF, a guy named Brian Habig, tells a story about this guy in college, he was, he was just a great guy. Great looking, great athlete, loved Jesus, made great grades. Well, like everybody, he led Bible studies, leader on campus. You couldn't help but love this guy. He thought he was great. And then, in his early 20s, he found out he had Hodgkin's. It was curable, uh, but it was a long road, and it was very, very messy for him. And he went into treatment, and he lost everything. It was a long period of time. There's, there's a sense once you get that kind of sick... You know, a lot of friends fall out of your life. He lost his health. He lost his body. Um, and he tells, when he talks about that season in his life, one night alone in his hospital room, he talked about a specific night where he got up to go to the bathroom and he collapsed. And it dawned on him, I'm not even capable of the most simple human functions anymore. Literally, I'm doing nothing. I have nothing more to offer to God to humanity. I can't even take care of myself. Not leading any Bible studies. Actually said he had given up praying months ago. Literally, he said, I now was doing nothing for Jesus. And I couldn't do anything for Jesus. The disorder and death in his body was now matched by the disorder and death in his heart. He had nothing left to offer God. And he said, that's when I finally understood grace. My only hope was if Jesus loved me the way that I was because I was powerless to be anything else. He finally understood grace in that moment. And to this day, he thanks God for Hodgson's disease. Let's pray.